Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I wonder if you have ever had the experience I've had in which you had an injury or a pain and you went to the doctor and you were told something maybe a little different than you expected. I'll never forget early on when I started running, having some lower back pain and, and going and receiving counsel, and I, I just knew there was something wrong with my back. I didn't know what it was and needed help with my back. Well, the counsel I re- received in that moment was, you need to stretch your hamstrings. And I was thinking, my back hurts and you're dealing with my legs. This makes no sense, right? Well, as you would expect, they knew best, and I started stretching my hamstrings and my lower back problems ceased to be a problem, right? Sometimes we receive counsel that's not exactly what we are expecting. What we perceive to be our problem is not really our ultimate and primary problem. My back was indeed hurting, but it wasn't my primary problem. And so what we want to look at this morning is a a passage of Scripture where we see something very similar going on where we learn that our perceived need is not necessarily our primary need. Let's look at the text this morning in Matthew chapter 9. We read from God's Word, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This would be Capernaum. He came to his own city, and behold... Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This account is relayed in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of these relay this account. Matthew's account of this this moment in which the friends bring the paralytic is the shortest. It's the most brief of the three accounts. And I believe it's for a specific purpose in why Matthew is telling it and even where in his gospel He's telling it. You might remember and recall that in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Mark and Luke, the story recounts that four friends lower the man through the roof. Remember, they couldn't find room. They, there was no room to get into Jesus. The only way they could get into Jesus was to remove part of the roof and to lower him down through. And for this, this reason, and probably rightfully so, we have a lot of people that would look at the text and, and, and focus on and think about the, the urgency that we see from the friends, the, the desire of the friends to, 
to bring the man to Jesus, to get him to Jesus at all costs, because that is a highlight in, in Mark and Luke, something that they make apparent, that they make clear. But Jesus really has little to say about the friends. If you look, I mean, not Jesus, Matthew. Matthew has little to say about the friends. If you look in, in our text today, in Matthew 9, we just read, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. It's just in passing that the paralytic was brought to him. That's all that Matthew wants to relay is that the paralytic didn't somehow come on his own. He wasn't laying there and Jesus crossed him, but some people brought him to Christ. And so Matthew makes little to do about the friends. Instead, he is focused on what this passage seeks to teach us about Christ. I would have you know that this passage 9, 1 through 8, everything in it revolves around the forgiveness of sins. Everything in it is driving towards this and focused on the forgiveness of sins. If you look at your text, you should see in verse 2 and verse 3 the and behold. And, and this is just a grammatical clue is what this is. It's a grammatical clue. There's two primary scenes or two primary points, two primary truths that we want to look at that we want to examine this morning. And behold, draw attention here. And behold, draws attention here. So let's look at those this morning. The first one is in verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 through 2, what we see here is that man's true need is forgiveness. Man's true need is forgiveness. So we read that when he got in the boat, he crossed over, and it says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take up your sins and walk. I mean, take up your mat and walk. Is that what he said? He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, the friends bring their friend to Jesus thinking that his primary need is to be healed. His physical ailment is his primary need. But when Jesus sees the man, he sees the faith of the friends, he perceives and he addresses the true need, the true primary need, which is spiritual healing. And this has to seem odd it has to seem odd in that moment to bring this man who's a paralytic, a friend, and to, to bring him before Jesus and be expecting Jesus to heal him. But in that moment, Jesus looks at him and he doesn't bring healing upon the man initially. Instead, what does he do? He says that your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he perceived the true need. Now, the Scripture teaches us, if we're careful to think back, it teaches us that man's, uh, man's ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not our ways. It teaches us that, that God always addresses our spiritual need. He always understands that our primary need in any given situation is where we are in relation to him, where we are spiritually. I want you to think back. You don't have to flip there, but I want you to think back. Some of you may recount and, and remember the account in Judges 6. The book of Judges in, in chapter 6, what you have is you have the, in verse uh, 1, it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So over the course of these seven years, the Midianites really oppress Israel. They, they have a heavy hand upon them. And they, they come, and when the Israelites will produce and they grow crops, the Midianites just wipe them out. Their livestock, they, they kill their livestock. They take advantage of the people, so much so that the people are living in caves. They're hiding in caves. The oppression from the Midianites is great, and it lasts for seven years. And so then we read in verse 7 of Judges 6 that the people cry out to the Lord. They cry out 
Free us. Deliver us from these Midianites. Relieve us of the oppression. So they cry out to the Lord. And what does God do? It says that if he will cry out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sends a prophet. He sends a, a prophet to the people. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed. Now, later, that's the beginning of what we have in the, the account of Gideon where God would then raise up Gideon to be a judge who would deliver the people. But I want you to see here that God raises up a prophet. He sends a prophet to the people before he sends Gideon. Why? Because their primary need was not the deliverance from the Midianites. Their primary need was deliverance from their sin. And so he sends a prophet to call them to repentance, to call them out for their disobedience to the Lord. God is always focused on our primary spiritual need. Our primary spiritual need is forgiveness, the deliverance from our sins. I think we, we miss this because we tend to be short-sighted. We, we, tend to, we tend to focus primarily on this present life, don't we? We, we tend to be consumed by our, our physical needs or the challenges that lie before us, the, the brokenness we experience, the trials of today. So much so that many times we can neglect our spiritual state. But it's our spiritual state that determines our eternity. But we can be so short-sighted to think about the suffering we endure, the trials we face, the sickness that comes upon us, and lose sight of where we are spiritually. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't to say that the trials we endure, the sickness we go through, the, the suffering we encounter is not important. That's not the case at all. It, it is important. But it's not of primary importance. It's not of paramount importance. It's not of ultimate importance. I want to explain to you a little bit why that is so. It's because the physical healing just brings temporary healing. It's temporary. It's not necessarily eternal healing. Someone could be healed physically and never be redeemed, and they're still going to spend eternity in hell. But one who is redeemed may be healed spiritually, and they may or may not get healed physically, but when you spend eternity in heaven, you are healed completely of all things. When we read Scripture and we look at, we look at eternity, we, we read Scriptures that talk about hell, the pain and the agony that comes and awaits the one who is not forgiven of their sin. Just listen to some of these. Revelation 20, verse 10 says that, the unbelievers deceived by Satan will be tormented day and night forever and ever in hell. The, the, the whole idea of annihilation, that at the end, if you're not a believer, you're just annihilated, you cease to exist, that's not the case. Scripture teaches that you are tormented day and night forever and ever outside of Christ. Matthew 13, 40 to 42 Jesus describes unbelievers who are cast into hell. He describes it as that place, in, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, the pain and the, the agony and the suffering 
that we would experience here is nothing compared to that that will be experienced in hell. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, Paul writes this. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And eternal destruction and ongoing destruction and ongoing destroying that is suffering in Luke 3 17 Matthew 3 12 Matthew 9 48 Matthew 18 8 we all have descriptions of hell being an unquenchable eternal fire what that means what we need to hear is that physical healing today is of little value if your sins are not forgiven. Physical healing and deliverance from today's sickness and trials will not help the plight of sinful man when he stands before the holy God. It may be a temporary resolving. It may temporarily make life now easier, but life in eternity will be awful. It will be filled with wrath and suffering, pain and torment, eternal destruction. And perhaps, perhaps you sit here today, you're outside of Christ, you're, you're an unbeliever, you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. You, you need to just simply know that you may long for healing. You may be praying for something to be different. You may pr- be praying for a, a suffering that you're in the midst of, whether it's physical or emotional or relational, that for you to be delivered from that. And I hope you are. I wouldn't wish ill on anyone. But you need to know that that is not your greatest need your greatest need is spiritual healing the the team that went to africa they go and they they provide physical help for people in need that physical help as vic mentioned in his in his his testimonies report is is temporary it's fleeting but primarily what the greatest thing is that they did is they go and they share the gospel and thanks be to god that people came to faith in christ Because their ultimate need, their primary need, their greatest need is to be forgiven by the Lord. That is all of our primary need. You must realize the need that you possess. I want you to hear the result of forgiveness. You think of physical healing, you think of the, the primary need, what your perceived need is. Well, when the forgiveness of God comes upon you by faith in Christ... When that is the reality, then you're saved, you're redeemed, and you spend eternity in heaven with Christ. Listen to how it's described in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. Many of you have probably heard this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No death, no mourning, no suffering, no crying, no pain. You want ultimate true healing? It comes through the forgiveness of Christ. It's only through the forgiveness of sin that we can be reconciled with God and that we can dwell in heaven where the awful effects of sin are absolutely removed and no 
more. It's only through Christ. So I would beg of you, I would plead of you this morning, if you are not a Christian, for you to consider your greatest need. Any physical healing you may be seeking is just temporary. It's just temporary. The forgiveness of Christ is eternal. Consider that this morning. The second thing, the second, remember we said the and behold or the cues in verse three, you'll see verse three begins with a second and behold. So the first is, is that our primary need is forgiveness. The second and behold leads us to see and to understand and to learn that Jesus has authority to forgive sin. He has authority to forgive sin. So we want to look and see what does this passage teach us about Jesus? What is the Christology of this passage? What is it that we learn about who he is, what he is able to do, what he does? Well, it teaches us simply, very clear, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sin. And look, at he's, he says to the man, he says that his sins are forgiven. And what is the scribe's response? They just kind of kick back and go, oh, well, that's good. How do the scribes respond? They're shocked. They're outraged, right? What, does he say? what do they say? This man is blasphemy. This man is claiming something of God's. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to do what only God can do. You see, now, up until now, if you'll notice, up until now in Matthew, we've made it eight chapters in Matthew without the scribes or the Pharisees coming aggressively against Christ. Jesus has spoken out against them. He's spoken and said, don't follow their example, right? He's done some teaching, but the scribes and Pharisees have listened. He even had in chapter eight, a scribe was one who came and said, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go, right? But now... Jesus says that your sins are forgiven and the scribes bow up. The scribes flare up and they say, whoa, 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 you're blaspheming. You're blaspheming. Now, why would they respond this way? They respond this way because they understand very clearly that Jesus is doing what God alone can do. They understand very clearly that when Jesus says your, sons are for, your sins are forgiven, that Jesus is saying, I'm God and I have the authority to forgive sins. They knew that God alone can forgive sins. And we understand this, right? If you leave today and on your way out, you sideswipe my van and you come into the church and you say, listen, Mike, I just want to apologize to you and ask your forgiveness for hitting Todd's van. Mike has no right to forgive you for hitting my van. Mike could care less. And he's not going to cost him a nickel, right? I'm sitting with the dilemma that I can't get home and eat the chili that's waiting for me, right? It's my van. I alone can forgive you for damaging my van, right? We understand this. I don't wrong you and go ask forgiveness from him. We ask forgiveness of who has been wronged. When we sin, we sin against God and God alone. You remember uh, David in, in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Right? He understood that his sin ultimately was against God, so he confesses to God. He comes to God seeking forgiveness. We understand that. The only one that has authority to forgive sin is the one in whom we've sinned against. And sin ultimately always is rebellion, transgression, disobedience against God. 
So he alone can forgive sins. As a matter of fact, Luke records this very thing. In Luke's account of this passage, in Luke 5, verse 21, this is what he writes. He says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood. They knew what this meant. This wasn't Jesus just flippantly doing something of little importance. This wasn't Jesus just trying to make the man feel good. This is Jesus meeting the man's greatest spiritual need, giving him forgiveness and declaring that I am God and I have the authority to forgive sins. See, the scribes knew, they knew in the Old Testament that God alone forgives They knew uh, Psalms, like Psalm 32. Just listen to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what does he do? And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. It's the Lord who forgives. It's the Lord to whom we seek forgiveness. It's the Lord to whom we confess. It's the Lord to whom we have obeyed or disobeyed, we've transgressed, we've rebelled against. It's the Lord who forgives. In Isaiah 33, 24, the the prophet prophesies of the the Messiah King who would bring forgiveness of God's people. And he says, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The forgiveness of the Lord was a mark of the Messiah. In Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. In Jeremiah 31, where the prophet Jeremiah prophesies of the new covenant. Listen to what is said. He, he prophesies there will be a new covenant God will establish with his people. The Lord says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the, best, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is from the Lord. We are needing forgiveness from the Lord. We confess the Lord. He is the one who forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And now Christ stands before them and he declares, your sins are forgiven. Now note two things he says here. Two aspects of this statement. One, he doesn't say, God will forgive your sins. I just want you to know that God will forgive your sins. That's what I will tell you this moment, that if you confess your sins to the Lord, you repent and turn to Christ in faith, I can tell you that God will forgive your sins. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, hey, God will forgive. He says, your sins are forgiven. He authoritatively just says, it's done. How can he say that? Because he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. He is God. He's not just a man. He's not calling on the Lord, on God to forgive sins. He is forgiving sins. 
And the second thing he says is, is he declares the forgiveness to be a present, settled reality. It's something that occurred in that moment. He's not saying, well, it's something that God has done in the past or something that God may do if you continue on in this route or you do these things. He declares, your sins are forgiven. Christ has authority to forgive sins because Christ is God. He's God. God in flesh. In verse 4, we see a, a glimpse of his character of God as, as God. Verse 4 says he knows their thoughts. He says, in, um, or it says there, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, perceiving their thoughts. He said, why do you think evil in your hearts? He understood. Why does he understand? Because he is wise. He is omniscient. He knows our very thoughts. You see, in the coming as a man, when Christ comes as a man, he does not empty himself and set aside his deity. It's not something he says, you know what, I'm no longer divine. I'm going to set my deity over here, and now I'm going to live on earth. No, he comes, he's fully God. He's truly God. He's fully man. He's truly man. And as such, he knows their very thoughts. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? He's addressing the heart. They haven't verbalized it yet. They haven't acted on it yet. And what is he addressing? Is addressing their heart. He always addresses the heart. Jesus does not ignore the sin of the heart, and he does not ignore the sin of our hearts either. He's going to address the heart. Now, verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7, he says, after confronting them on that, he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk? How would you answer that? It's probably easier just for him to say, oh, your sins are forgiven. Why? Really no tangible evidence right there before them. And he could argue and debate and claim. But when he says, looks at a paralytic and says, rise and walk. Well, everybody's watching. Everyone's observing. Everyone's seeing that. The greatest need is forgiveness. But the one that we can perceive and see was that healing, right? And so knowing this, Jesus says, but that you may know, right? But that you may know what? What does he want them to know? So we've been talking about. What does he want them to know? That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That the Son of Man has authority on earth earth to forgive sins the purpose of this the reason he's going to do what he's doing is that they would know that he has the authority to forgive he said to the paralytic rise pick up your bed and go home rise pick up your bed and go home the the physical healing right the physical healing is not ultimate it's not the end goal no, the physical healing serves to declare the reality that Jesus is God and he has authority to forgive sins. So we see again, we're reminded again that not only does he address forgiveness and his sins as the primary need, he also makes the point to say, you know what, this forgiveness, I mean, this physical healing is to show you that I do have authority to forgive sins. When I say that your sins are forgiven, I have the authority and the ability to do that. 
And the way I'm going to show you that is I'm going to look at this paralytic and I'm going to tell him, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. I love the, the follow-through of Matthew. The Holy Spirit leads him, right, to write this and to say, um, the paralytic, rise up, and, when he, and he rose and went home. We're not left hanging. We're not left thinking, well, I wonder if he was healed. I wonder if, I wonder if Jesus is able to do it. No. The Word of God says that he rose and he went home. He was healed. Christ is mighty to heal. He's mighty to save. Listen, I, I want you to know this morning a very simple but important truth. The good news that we have to hear is not just that Jesus has the authority and ability to forgive sins. The good news is that Jesus does forgive sins. The good news is that he paid the necessary penalty for us to be forgiven. It's not, it's not just that he can forgive sin, but it's that he does forgive sin. That is the good news that we have to hear, that we have to understand and perceive from this passage. It would be one thing for Jesus to see the man and go, you know what, you're healed. You really need your sins forgiven. You need to consider that and, and get your sins forgiven. We don't have that here. What we haven't said is, is Jesus looking and saying, your sins are forgiven. Be healed. Take up your mat and go home. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin and he does forgive sin. And the reason that's good news is because God is a holy God. He's a holy God who is just and righteous in all his ways. It is who he is, and God cannot act contrary to who he is. He can't. For God not to act in holiness, not to act in righteousness, not to act in justness would defy who he is. And if he ceases to be who he is, then he ceases to be God, and we don't worship him. There's no reason to. And so God is a holy, just, righteous God. And then we step back and we consider that's who God is, but then we look and we understand and we see it in the testimony of Scripture. We see it in the mirror. We hear it in our conversations. We see it as we lay down at night and we think back on our actions of the day. We know that we are sinful people, that we are not holy, that we are not just, we are not righteous. We're sinners. We're rebels. We're transgressors. We defy the Lord. We disobey the Lord. And the problem in that is that if we are sinners and God is a holy God who is just, there's a problem because as a just and holy and righteous God, he will and he does punish sin. He does. There's a separation that sin has brought between us and God. It's broken that relationship. He's severed that relationship. And the good news is God, knowing this, sent Jesus Christ to reconcile us back, to bring us back together into relationship with God, to restore that relationship. God did that. We can't do that on our own. God does it. God restores us into a right relationship with him. Romans 5.8 talks about that. Talks about the love of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. 
It was He who made a way for us to be saved. It was He who did the work, who went to the cross, who died on the cross, the the Son of God on the cross, taking the weight of the wrath of God poured out on sin. The amazing thing about the cross is not that He just died on the cross. It's that He died in our place taking the wrath of the Father that we might be saved. And that by His blood shed on the cross, we might be forgiven. That we might be forgiven. In Him, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. By His grace poured out on the cross. In Him. That is good news. That Jesus Christ has died for us and is an expression of God's love. Martin Lloyd-Jones in a a book, if you've never read it, it's a little book, it's really good, called The, The Plight of Man and the Power of God. He wrote this, he says, The love of God is a holy love. It expresses itself not by condoning sin or compromising with it. It deals with it. So the holy love of God deals with it and yet does so in such a way that the sinner is not destroyed with his sin but is delivered from it and its consequences. Oh, the love of God. What a magnificent truth that God demonstrates his love by sending Christ to the cross to die for our sins, to deal with sin and dealing with sin in such a way that his wrath is removed from the one who expresses faith, who trusts in Christ. He deals with sin. He pays for sin. He doesn't ignore it, but he does so in such a way that delivers the sinner rather than destroying the sinner. Final passage I just want to read to you and leave you this morning. We think about the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. We read what we've been talking about. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. What a beautiful truth that we are dead in trespasses. We're dead in our sin. We are children of wrath, Ephesians 2 describes us. Romans 2 describes us as those outside of Christ who are storing up God's wrath. That outside of Christ, we just continue to gain more and more and more of the awful wrath of God. But yet, according to Colossians 2, God makes us alive together. He regenerates us. He brings new life into us and forgives us our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. If you are one who would stand here this morning and say, you know what, I come and I listen. I I know a lot about church. I've come to church a lot. I know a lot about the Bible. But you've never repented of your sins. You never turned from your sins and trusted Christ as Lord. You've never looked and said, in Christ alone I stand. I don't stand on my own deeds. I'm not trying to prove myself. I'm not trusting what I can do or what I can say. I'm not trying to earn my way, but I just trust in Christ alone. Christ, save me. Jesus, save me. Please, I can't do it on my own. 
If you've never done that, I would appeal to you and encourage you to please do that. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Know the forgiveness that is found in him today. Please, don't delay. The end of our text today in Matthew just want to draw your attention to the response of the crowds. Do you remember the response? A, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on this last passage of chapter 8, the healing of the demoniac. And at the end of that, if you look in verse 34 the, of chapter 8, it says, Behold, the city came out and met Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They saw what Christ had done. They said, Please leave us, leave us, leave us. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Getting in the boat, he crossed over. He left them. Pastor Michael, in that sermon, relayed and, and shared with you the bad that that is, the evil, the, not the evil, but the, the, just the bad news that is, the, the, that that is not something we would want to see happen. That Jesus would leave, he would depart. The people say, leave, get away, get away, get away. Well, that contrasts here in verse 8 of chapter 9. Instead of saying, get away, we don't want you here. Instead, in verse 8 of chapter 9, it says the crowd saw it. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We see them doing three things there. They see it. They behold their God, right? They see, they get a glimpse of God. And when they see God, what do they do? They fear him. There's this reverent fear that comes upon them to see what a mighty, awesome, incredible God he is. They see his authority, they see his power, they see his magnificence, and they are afraid. They have a reverent fear come over them. And what does it say they do? They glorify God. They glorify him, they exalt him, they magnify him, they praise him. Listen, when we rightly behold the power and glory of God, when we get a glimpse of how wonderful he is, how magnificent he is, it is not something that we go, wow, and then we leave and never think anything else about him. When we get a true glimpse of the glory and the greatness of God, it leads to a reverent fear of him that we look and we stand in awe and amazement at what an awesome God he is. And it leads us to exalt and glorify his name. That is a right response to what happened in this moment. And it's the antithesis of what happened at the end of chapter 8. I mean, you would think the people at the end of chapter 8, when, he saw the, when, when they saw Jesus cast the, the demons into the pigs, you would think that they would be struck with fear and they would glorify God, but instead they say, get away, get away, get away. And I fear that there are people in our day, perhaps people sitting amongst us today, who are doing the same. You hear testimonies of God doing great things, you witness it in your homes, maybe a family member, maybe it's a, a son or a daughter or a mother or father is living faithfully in the Lord. You see the Lord's work in their life. You see it around you. You come, you hear testimony, you hear declaration through songs and through preaching. You hear it through teaching. You hear the word of God. You see it and you see the magnificence. You hear how awesome and holy and mighty and wonderful God is. You hear of the depth of his grace week in and week out. And yet all the while, you just keep rejecting and pushing him away. You keep saying, no, get away. I don't want you. You're, you keep denying him. You keep denying your need for forgiveness. You keep denying the call of Christ. You keep rejecting the one who would forgive you. Stop. Stop. If you hear the voice of the Lord today, and the Spirit's working in your life, don't delay don't harden your hearts as you have so far, so many times in the past. Trust 
Christ. Trust Christ. It's not about playing religious games. It's about understanding that my greatest need of all is forgiveness. There's trials of life that face every one of us. There's difficulties that befall each one of us. Some of you are going through trials that people can hardly comprehend. But even in the midst of all of that, your greatest need, my greatest need, is forgiveness. And that forgiveness is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Trust Him. Turn to Him today. Let's pray. Father, we...